My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter Eight, Read by Nick Scott. Our small band of pilgrims have arrived at the base of Mount Kailash to undertake the Korah, the circumambulation of the holy mountain. Chapter Eight: Facing Difficulty. Ajahn Sumedho eventually made it to Mount Kailash. He was taken by a group of Americans when he was sixty-eight in two thousand and two. On my return from Tibet, one of them, John Levy, sent me a slideshow he and the organizer Hal Nathan had shown in their hometown in California. That was soon after their return, eleven years before. I watched it a dozen times. It was surreal and quite moving to see Ajahn Sumedho undertake the same grueling pilgrimage that I'd just done. There they were, assembling in Kathmandu, visiting Swayabuna, as we had, with the long flight of stone steps leading ever upwards, the monkeys, the religious commotion at the top, with pilgrims, tourists, and a group of Nawari musicians in full swing. In one slide, Ajahn Sumedho turns a prayer wheel as he passes. They went to Bodhnath too, the immense squat stupa smiling down at the camera. And to a Hindu temple with chatting sadhus hanging out together, incense smoke curling upwards. There are Kathmandu street scenes, and one of their pilgrimage party grouped together. I counted ten: two monks, three laymen, and five women. It was Hal who told me over the phone how Ajahn Sumedho got to go. My wife and I had trekked in Nepal. Done Solokumbu and other stuff. Then this Tibetan friend of ours, who works for the American Himalaya Foundation in Kathmandu, he said, "Now you got to do Kailash." So we got a group together for May two thousand and two. There was Iwana, the wife of Noble Tenzing, who runs the foundation here in America. She's Polish, and two friends of hers, Laurie. A Marlene, John Levi with his adult son Alex, and a woman friend of ours, Beverly. Then we were on a retreat taught by Ajahn Sumedho at Spirit Rock in two thousand and one. I'm on the board there. Sumedho told us what had happened to him, and so we said, "Hey, why don't you come with us?" His assistant Panasaro did the coordinating. We got the tickets, and the rest is history. It was a real joy to have him along. Just incredible! What a spirit he was. So the others hadn't known he'd be coming. That's right. They signed up before that. Then our neighbour Micheline, she's French Canadian. She came when my wife couldn't.
A slide taken in Kathmandu shows the two Theravada monks passing a luxurious swimming pool in beautiful grounds set before what must be a five-star hotel. Another shows the front of an equally well-appointed Tibetan monastic building, with them all preparing to go in. Arjun Samedo is holding a kata offering scarf. Then they're meeting a Tibetan Lama, who sits cross-legged behind a low table at the head of the reception room, on a seat slightly higher than his visitors. They are all drinking tea from China teacups, and then the Lama is writing something out for them. Finally, there's a photo with a smiling Awana and her friend Lori sitting either side of him, their silk carters, which have been offered back to them, round their necks. The Lama is also smiling and leaning forward so he can put his arms round their shoulders. Hajan Sumedha doesn't appear in any of these photos. All the Rinpoche's attention appears to be for the women. We couldn't walk into Tibet like you did. John Levy told me when I phoned him. Those valleys had the Maoists in them then, so we had to drive to Mount Kailash. I still recognise their route though, as this was the way we'd returned after Alcora. The first terraces of green paddy fields rising up steep slopes. Nepalese villagers working with water buffalo. Then the Boulder Bridge the near-vertical forested valley sides as the road climbs up through the Himalayas to the Tibetan Plateau, and then Nyaland. Yeah, Hal told me. We stayed in one of those frontier towns in Tibet where the accommodation was ungodly. The Snowland Hotel certainly doesn't look five-star, so we camped outside town to acclimatise and do some trekking. Four small blue tents are lined up, pitched perfectly in a line, military style, on a green mountainside. Other blue tents in the background would be for the Sherpas, and the one on its own for the monks. Two little blue toilet tents are set discreetly down the slope with a view into the abyss below and across to distant mountains with jagged tops covered in snow. In another slide, they are returning from a trek wearing thick layers with waterproofs over the top, some of them, including the two monks, leaning on light metal walking poles. Ajahn Samedo looks tired. Nyaland's where we met our transport, a big truck for the gear and these three Land Rovers with Tibetan drivers. And you also kept the Sherpas you came with from Kathmandu? Yeah, and our friend Sendo from Marla Treks. So we had quite a crew. I count eleven in total. Some contrast to our small minibus, Doji, and the driver. We drove overland from east to west. I don't know what that's like now, but then it was god-awful, Hal told me. To call it a road was being kind to it, and at 15,000 feet, we were right up there, and people started to get real sick. That includes both the monks. The slides show wide vistas of an empty dry landscape, with a distant white jagged Himalayan wall running across the background. 
The foregrounds have patches of dry grass and one slide shows a dark blob in the near distance, which looking closer is a nomad family's camp. Another is taken through a dust-streaked windscreen and shows two land cruisers ahead throwing up dust clouds. There is a slide of them waiting to cross a small river by ferry, a platform supported by two pontoons connected by cable to the riverbanks. They're parked behind a line of open-backed pilgrim trucks with blue wooden slatted sides decorated with prayer flags. Each truck's cargo of Tibetan pilgrims stands to one side, chatting. Nearly all are in traditional clothes, the women in long black wrapped dresses with colourful striped aprons, the men wearing loose knee-length Mongolian-style coats, the front two flaps reaching to the opposite waist and low enough that an arm can be tucked casually inside. The men mostly wear wide-brimmed hats, while the women have thick scarves tied tightly under the chins. Even a baby on a mother's back wears one. Their bedding and sacks with their belongings are piled inside the trucks. The next slide shows two trucks crossing on the ferry, with 20 pilgrims crammed into the back of each. The landscape has changed again. The dry grass has mostly gone, replaced in places with a white smear of dried salt. There are rounded lower mountains. They stop in a Tibetan hostel, much like the one in Darshan we stayed in, except their tents are lined up in the courtyard, four together and one apart for the monks, along with the land cruisers. Presumably the crew slept in the dormitory-style rooms we occupied. Then the land cruisers are lurching down and into a small river, which they cross, creating waves of turbulence in the water behind them. It took us three days to get to Mount Kailash. To Darshan, I suggested to Hal. Yeah, a real dump with prostitutes. It's a real hellhole. There were other groups waiting there for days. These Europeans... Swiss they were, had been ten days waiting for a guide and yaks to take them round. But hey, we got real lucky because of the American Himalayan support for that health centre there. I don't know if you went up to that place? No? Well, there's a centre there for holistic medicine and homeopathic stuff. Say, don't you, the doctor who drove out onto the flatlands to get his brother and sister, who were yak herders, to bring their yaks in and hook us up. So next morning we could set off to do that circuit. It was the year of the horse when you get extra credit if you go round, he explained. So there were huge numbers of locals, and that was why it was so tough to get started. All the Tibetans were coming in the back of these old blue Chinese trucks for days. Then they would get up at four in the morning and just take off and do that darn thing in a day, in their sneakers or whatever they were wearing. It was an incredible sight to see them all going up that trail. 
the year that was in it, as they like to say here in Ireland, would also be the explanation for the number of colourful Tibetan marquees covered in swirling designs, like the one we slept in at Tutapuri. At the start of our walk around the Kora, we saw nothing like that. But then there are no Indian pilgrims shown in their slides, no modern coaches, Nissan huts or Tibetans with ponies, just lots of Tibetan pilgrims and their one group of Americans. A slide shows their group about to set off, standing in line for the camera. Next, Venerable Panasaro is leaning on his walking stick and gazing out at the vast plain from the path that climbs gently out of Darshan. There's the stupa of stones on the corner where the path turns into the first valley. And then they are passing what Hal referred to as that giant maypole. It is lying on its side waiting for the celebration of Sakadawa in a few days time. For us, it had already been erected. Ajahn Samedo did a little ceremony. A blessing ceremony. Then we started hiking round that mountain. Their hiking wasn't far that first day. They only did half of what we did. But then we didn't camp, which was down to Roger. For Roger, luggage was your negative karma and should be carried on your own back, he told us in Kathmandu. If it was heavy, then that was because this is your anxiety. The more anxious you are, the more you take. So it is good to suffer the consequences. He did concede that walking in from Nepal, carrying all our camping gear, might be too much. But for his beloved Cora round Mount Kailash, he had done it himself the first time with just a shoulder bag and blanket. You can sleep and eat at the Gompers, where they are giving you bedding. All you must have is the water in a bottle carrier hung from your shoulder so you can drink easily. I was willing to do it like that and Damaraka was positively inspired with the idea. That's how I do too, Don. But the others were more cautious. Our compromise was to hire a local man to carry one pack, mine, as it was the largest, and load it with our sleeping bags and a few other bits of negative karma. But we did buy the locally made water bottle carriers Roger recommended. Roger had an interesting combination of strong opinions. He seemed to accept without question every belief that Tibetans had about Kailash, to which he often added his own New Age interpretations. He'd asked me to bring three pound coins to Kathmandu as they were excellent for throwing the I Ching. But then he could be so grounded about practical things. He was completely right, for instance, about those water bottles. Mine was so easy to drink from, I could even manage it while standing, utterly exhausted, leant on my staff, trying to recover enough energy to manage a few more steps. He also warned us in his way about the commotion and the coaches of Indians at the start. It had just been a bit too obtuse for me. 
there's this market situation, a function of the miserable thing that has happened. Do not engage in that. You must stay in your core, stay in your center, not moving. Then there is the fence. Beyond this, there is none of that. He was again right. Once beyond the fence, there was just the valley with a small river, a wide path, sunlit splashes here and there. Only our party was ahead of me, strung out with Dorji and the porter in the distance, plus the occasional group of Tibetans ambling along. The valley was wide and U-shaped, with steep rock sides, carved originally by a massive glacier flowing down it. It was sparsely vegetated, even vaguely green, rather than the ochre of the plain, and gently undulating as it rose slowly between the mountains. Above, the low clouds were gradually parting to reveal a black mountainside, with glimpses of white peaks above. It was, as Roger had said, beautiful and spacious. But the notion I now had that I could keep it like that, by increasing my stride to leave the Indian pilgrims behind, proved nonsense. I exhausted myself just walking at my normal pace for 20 minutes. There was no way I could keep that up. I'd just have to give in and let them catch me up. All of them. While I was still recovering, the more athletic Indian pilgrims passed me. Several young guides wearing trainers and a middle-aged couple with proper walking boots and walking poles. Next, as I continued on more slowly, came snaking lines of Indian pilgrims on ponies, in groups of a dozen or so, all wearing coloured puffy jackets, mostly the same bright red, but some groups were in fawn, brown or blue, all with the tour company name on the back. Rika Travels Sharma travel. The same names were on their shoulder bags, carried by the pony's Tibetan owner, who was usually holding the reins and walking ahead or occasionally sauntering along behind. These were mostly young Tibetan men and women, a few traditionally dressed, but most wearing an assortment of Western-style clothes, jeans and jackets with wide hats or scarves. One had music playing from his mobile phone. With each such group, I would stand aside to let them pass before walking slowly on. After a while, even the Indian pilgrims on foot were passing me. Some also wore the puffy jackets, but mostly they were in their own clothes thick layers of jumpers topped with a woolen balaclava pulled down to frame their face. I was struck by their ordinariness. Lower middle class, office workers say, or shopkeepers. Few seemed to have much English. Not that I or they wanted to chat. We were all intent on the difficulty of just managing to walk. Stopping regularly to rest, me on my staff, they on simple walking sticks they bought from stands beside where the coaches parked. 
So I was now part of a stream of people, ponies, and occasionally even yaks laden with supplies, winding up the valley. I could see the line twisting ahead and behind me. And it was just fine. Having given in and returned to a slow pace, I was able to enjoy it again. Me and all these Indians walking round Holy Kailash. The only person slower than me was a lone Tibetan woman prostrating her way round the mountain. Three steps. Hands clapped loudly together in prayer, then raised, bow, bend, kneel, prostrate full length on the floor, arms and hands stretching out before her. The next three steps would take her only as far as her hands had just reached. Thus, she would circle the mountain in body lengths. To protect her front, she wore a full-length hide apron of rough goatskins tied round her back and neck. On her hands, she had gloves with flat wooden fronts. It was these that she clapped together before she raised them above her head, then bowed into each prostration. She looked in her late thirties, the first slight flecks of grey showing in her black hair, and under the hide apron, dressed in sophisticated city dwellers' jeans and rain jacket. An Indian woman pilgrim, passing her, bent and lightly touched her feet as a blessing. When a group of Indians on ponies came past, she marked her last prostration with a stone before stepping aside, as I had. As I went on, I could hear both the jingling sound of the ponies receding ahead and the clap of her wooden gloves behind me. After each standing rest, I could manage about 15 minutes slow walking before having to take another. Each time I'd have to resist sitting down. So pleasant, it was too hard to get up. Instead, I'd lean on my staff, which was just the right height for my overlapping hands clasped atop it to support my chin. Leaning like that, looking ahead, too tired to think or take much in, the clap of the wooden gloves somewhere behind me, I was passed by Indians on foot. I would wait there for some sense of vitality to return. Then, when I started again, I might in turn pass them, as they stopped to regain their breath. But then I'd be passed again, and eventually they would leave me behind. The clouds were steadily moving higher, revealing mountain walls on both valley sides. The further one with a small monastery, one of the fortified ones the Tibetans call a gompa, set just beneath a rocky cliff face. It looked toy-like on the side of the mountain, a maroon and white doll's house with a tiny golden spire on its flat roof. Above me, the west face of Mount Kailash was starting to show, sheer black rock with snow above, the rest still in cloud. I came to a pile of rocks with prayer flags beside the path. This must be what Roger called the second arm where one does three prostrations towards the mountain and one's wisdom wish. May I be well for the sake of all beings.
things like that. All I could manage was to lean on my staff and take in the amazing mountain. It was only the thought of the tea house he'd said was next that eventually motivated me to action. There, pilgrims congregated outside a marquee where tethered ponies waited patiently. Inside, the Tibetans leant over bowls, forking up streams of noodles, while the Indians sat staring vacantly ahead with drink cans or cups in their hands. Our party was in a row at one table. Dorji had suggested the monks eat there, Rory told me, as the next stop might be too far. Now they were all drinking tea. That was probably beyond where Ajahn Sumedho's party camped, as John Levy's slide, showing nine blue tents and a larger mess tent, all set along the base of the mountainside, is followed by pictures of Kailash's west face, as seen from the Om prostration spot. Perhaps they only got that far on the first day, because the Tibetans had to assemble and load the yaks in the morning to carry all their gear. Ajahn Sumedho had obviously changed his mind about not returning to Tibet until the Chinese let the Dalai Lama in by the time he got that second invitation, four years later. Grand statements like that, which might later be thought better of, were typical of him. I remember another. He once told me he didn't want any more monks at Amaravati. That was after he'd been through a particularly painful time with a lot of them leaving. That was forgotten too. Ajahn Sumedho wasn't perfect. But then he didn't pretend to be or try to hide or explain away any imperfection, as many spiritual teachers can. Instead, he would share the suffering caused by his own faults and the insights learnt from it. That I found extremely helpful. I wasn't interested in being devoted to some kind of super-being. But spiritual teachers, if they are any good, are inevitably turned into objects of devotion, even when they try to prevent it. Look at what happened to the Buddha. So I expect there will be those who think I shouldn't write about Ajahn Sumedho like this. It could upset and undermine the devotion of the laity. But to my mind, if you are serious about trying to follow in anyone's footsteps, rather than simply being inspired by them, then you have to learn that this person, this monastery, this tradition, or whatever, is not the end point of what one is seeking. Ajahn Sumedho, as he would say over and again, is just a convention simply another part of this conditioned world that is to be seen through. The most inspiring memory I have of him is not of some grand teaching he gave, but of a time when he was facing real difficulty, showing his own humanity, but also managing to rise above it. It was a time of all those monks leaving, there was a cohort of junior Ajans then, monks, mostly he had trained, who'd been a monk for ten years or more. They now wanted to change things, 
to come out from beneath the father figure, and they were encouraged by a more senior monk to make their stand in a meeting at Chittas Monastery, where I was then based. I heard that Ajahn Sumedha received a tsunami of criticism, with no one there to defend him. The morning after, looking battered, he suggested we go for a walk together on Iping Common, the open heath nearby. He told me, as we strolled along, that he hadn't been that hurt by all the criticism, though the way he said it made me think, oh yes you have mate. But what impressed me was his lack of any anger despite that hurt. There was just compassion. He wanted to talk to me because I knew the senior monk involved. He wanted to know what he might have done wrong to upset him and what he could do to put it right. It made me reflect that I too had recently been through something similar. A new boss had engineered an attempt to remove me which had finally succeeded. But I'd never once in over a year manage such compassion. The next slides of Ajahn Sumedho's second pilgrimage show a stream of Tibetans passing up the valley. Presumably that's early the next morning, taken while the party took their breakfast. Then the American party is walking again. Slides show some of them ahead on the path, then crossing a stream, balancing on rocks with the Sherpas helping the women. Then walking again, Iwana and Lori are easy to identify. They are wearing traditional Tibetan dresses, full-length black wraparound ones with colourful striped aprons, plus American baseball caps and walking boots. They look very sweet, like Barbie dolls in Barbie's Tibetan costume. They even seem to be wearing makeup. Next, Ajahn Sumedha's party is sitting around having lunch, each with a metal camping mug and a pink tinted clear plastic bag of sandwiches. I'd already heard about these through other monks. Back in the UK, pink plastic bags like those would bring back the horror of it for Ajahn Sumedha. Neither of the monks could eat the lunch, stale bread with cheese slices and a hard-boiled egg because they were feeling too nauseous. So they'd become steadily weaker. I asked Hal about that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them were feeling that way. Real nauseous, particularly the two monks. So your main meal was in the evening, was it? When the monks couldn't eat? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It would have been difficult to cook a special meal for them, so, so they just had those crazy packed lunches. Then the perishables ran out real quick and the diesel fuel spilled on the rest in the back of the wagon. So it was bad for everyone then. Just boiled eggs and dark. Then with a high altitude, people's appetite wasn't good, particularly the monks. What about the rest of the group? Someone told me that some of the women were really just into Tibetan Buddhism. Lari's noble's wife, Awana, yeah, yeah, they were involved in the Tibetan thing in a big way. Prostrations and all that stuff. And they really got off on the Tibetan lamas we met. 
I don't think they appreciated who Samedo was. They were on a Tibetan pilgrimage and they just stayed in their Tibetan thing. Ajahn Samedo must have really missed Andrew Yates, who had the experience to be able to adapt things to suit monks. But I'm certain he never complained. I too couldn't eat much at the lunch stop. I just had tea and some kind of biscuit. I then started off after the others, not wanting to be left too far behind. Dorji and the porter had gone on to arrange our stay that evening in Dirapuk Gumpa, and I wanted to ensure I got there. Six or seven hours of casual walking. Very easy. Flat. A beautiful valley. Roger's description ran as a reassuring mantra in my head. I reckoned all I had to do was just keep going. No need to hurry, just enjoy it. The wide valley led ahead, rising gently. There now seemed as many Indian pilgrims coming down the valley as going up. These were the ones who'd realised they couldn't manage the next day's climb over the pass and opted to go back. Although now going downhill, they looked no better than those going up. None looked as if they ever took real exercise in their ordinary lives, let alone trekking round a mountain at altitude. The few hours that morning had exhausted those coming up the valley, so now they were all going at the same slow pace. Five or ten minutes slow walking, stopping, standing to recover, then another short walk. There was little talking. But the pilgrims on the ponies usually spoke as they passed. Excuse me, what is your country? You are coming on religious yatra to Holy Mountain? I didn't need to give a reply. Just nod or grunt a greeting. They were soon passed, wobbling and swaying ahead of me. Each large bright red body swaying one way, atop its pony as its head with its balakava moved in the opposite direction. The tip of the hat, which was free, would flop to the same side. Then, with the next step of the pony, everything would reverse. When one of the ponies stopped opposite me to defecate, lifting its tail to emit steaming dung, the Indian atop it had no idea what was happening and rocked back and forth impatiently. None of them could ever have ridden a horse before. Rory saw one rider fall off at the tea house. He just flopped sideways, Rory told me, when the horse took a particularly large step. Of course, not all of the pilgrims on the ponies were overweight, but most were, some of them spectacularly so. At the tea house, there was one woman so large it took two extra Tibetans to get her remounted one to help the owner push her up, while another steadied the pony and pulled at her jacket. They seemed wealthier than the pilgrims on foot, more like those we'd seen waiting for the helicopter. They had good cameras and more expensive-looking clothing beneath the puffy jackets, 
They also had walking sticks pointlessly clasped in one hand. By now I had no resentment for my fellow pilgrims. I felt at peace with all of it. The mountains, the effort, the heavy breathing, the Indian pilgrims, the beauty of the valley. Ahead was the next bit of path. That was all that mattered. Fifty steps, maybe, and then stop to rest again. Fewer when there was an incline. Inside there was great serenity. The only other emotion to surface occasionally was compassion. By mid-afternoon, the Indian pilgrims walking with me were obviously really suffering. Many were trailing their walking sticks behind them, no longer able to lift them. Most were my age, but looked like they'd never done anything like this before. They had simply decided to go on this pilgrimage, now that their children had grown up, presumably with no idea of what they were taking on. Somehow I'd caught up with Rory by this point. My memory of the detail is blurred. There must have been another stop at a tea house, as I recall realising he'd been waiting for me there. He looked out for me a lot on that Cora. It was easier with him. I could even manage short conversations, exchanging impressions of what we'd seen while we waited for my breathing to subside and some vitality to return. All the small side valleys entered the main valley higher up, so that their streams dropped as long, thin waterfalls to the valley floor. We reckon these valleys must have been made by small side glaciers when the main valley was filled to that height with ice. There were regular moraines across the valley, so that every so often the path would climb over a low ridge of rocks or scree. These must have been left by the retreating main glacier. Then there were the rocks themselves. We'd both spotted boulders of conglomerate, rock made of other rocks, as well as a variety of other rock types, igneous and sedimentary. Kailash is an ancient volcano, a plug of once molten lava which broke through the sedimentary layers, melting and transforming them. That was why the size of the mountain we were looking up at was so straight and black. That would be the igneous core. Then, of course, there were the flowers. It seems so sweet that such a large man as Rory can get so much enjoyment from such small things. We spotted little stone crops attached to the sides of rocks, a rosette of tiny trumpet-like yellow flowers coming straight out of the ground with no leaves showing yet, a green cushion straggling several rocks, which on close inspection had minute green flowers over its surface. Rory would guess the names of some of them. But I'm, I'm not entirely certain of that. And squat down to take close-up photos for later identification. Rory was with me when we met the young Indian guy from America sitting on a rock facing down the valley. He called out to us as we came up. Hey, you guys speak English? There was a distinct American twang to his Indian accent. Yes. How far's the guest house? Two hours. Shit, it's not. Yeah, yeah, it must be. 
four of our party are already dead. What? How can they be dead already? We've got A and B groups. A went yesterday. Four of them are dead. They just told us. He didn't seem that perturbed by this revelation. More fed up with having to wait there for his old relations to come along. He also told us how this was his first visit to India and they brought him with them as a special treat. When I asked how many were in the party, he said, 253, we came in five coaches. They'd driven via Kathmandu on the same route Ajahn Samedo's party came on, now tarmacked, up through the Himalayas and across the Tibetan desert. What are you doing to hydrate, he asked. I've had a red bull. When I told him about Roger's advice to drink four litres of water each day to help with the altitude, he said, They told us nothing like that. Did they give you extra days so you could acclimatise to the altitude? Nah, we arrived yesterday. So they'd stopped just two nights at altitude, once at the border and once at Darshan, before starting the Cora. No wonder they were all now looking so completely shattered. One dear old lady, short and wearing a pair of flowery trousers and outdoor jacket, was collapsing on her walking stick every hundred yards. No wonder most of those on foot decided to turn back. Eventually his aunt and uncle, who looked about fifty, came stumbling up the path and sat down beside him. We left him trying to talk to them in Hindi. Next we reached the bridge, which Roger had warned us about. Do not miss this. You have to cross here to Dirapak side. Other pilgrims will go straight on to the guest house, but the Gompa is on the other side of the river, so you must look for the bridge. And here it was. There was no sign of the Gompa, but ahead on our side of the river we could see the large low buildings of the guesthouse, with the Indian pilgrims trailing slowly towards them. The path beyond ascended the valley side, winding up to Dolmala. Over the bridge we sat down to rest on a boulder beside the river, the clear sparkling water spilling over a rock-strewn bed in front of us. I felt good although I was very tired. From there we gazed in wonder up at the north face of Kailash, now completely free of cloud. It was so vertical that little snow could find a purchase below the rounded top. Here Kailash was truly magnificent. The jet black face had just two white streaks crossing it, one rising slightly from left to right and the other dropping steeply from top left to bottom right. We reckon they must be faults in the igneous rock, creating slight ledges where the snow could settle. Rory pointed out that the same black rock appeared on the mountain to our right on the other side of the valley, so it too must be igneous. Eventually I told Rory to go on. It wasn't far, I told him, and I'd like to sit and enjoy this place. I must have stayed there another hour alone, enjoying gazing at the mountain. A Lama Gaia came past, 
a huge vulture with enormous black wings and a white and ochre body, larger than an eagle, but with a magnificent mountain backdrop, it looked no larger than a crow. It was hunting slowly up the valley, now that the pilgrims had gone, looking for food. Then I realised the clouds were steadily building and that rain might be on its way. So I walked slowly on, my mind silent and at peace, encouraging my reluctant body along the path Rory had taken, climbing slightly up the hillside, stopping after each short stretch. Ahead, the tips of two poles with a few fluttering prayer flags just showed above another moraine. I was overtaken by two Tibetans, city types wearing new trainers and good clothes, walking at what seemed to me an incredibly fast rate, but what would have been my normal walking pace at home. I followed the path over the low crest ahead to find a hillside of small white stupas setting lines across the slope with the small gompa just beyond. Several squat buildings sat on the slope facing Mount Kailash, Two tall poles alongside with lines of fluttering prayer flags tied to the ground. The cloud was really building behind me now and darkening. I could see rain further down the valley and it was coming my way. But there wasn't the energy to be able to hurry. I could only walk a hundred yards slowly, then lean on my staff to rest again. Another stone building came into view, well beneath the gompa, next to the river. The two Tibetans were now walking from the monastery down towards it. That, I reckoned, would be the monastery's guest house. Roger had said Dorji should book the best room there, with the view of the mountain. But I wanted to continue to the monastery, and pay my respects to the Buddha. I'd had a good day. Wisdom had prevailed. Roger had instructed us, You must stay in Shikora. And somehow I had. Despite the physical difficulties, all the Indian pilgrims, and the occasional thoughts of the climb to Dolmala ahead, I'd managed to enjoy the day. As I neared the building, Ajanamro appeared and gave me a wave. Then he ascended the stone steps leading up to the entrance, taking the twenty or so steps with ease in one go and disappeared from view. When I got there, I determined to do the same as my last valiant effort. Arrive with a flourish was the idea. Somehow I managed to stagger up without stopping, but at the top my head swam so violently I couldn't stand and I collapsed against the wall. When I got up again, I had no idea where Ajahn Amro had gone. I felt like Alice following the white rabbit. Tibetan chanting was coming from a small temple across a courtyard of rounded flat boulders. I looked in, but found only a few Tibetan monks performing their evening devotions. So I tried a side room. There I found my companions, each sitting on a bed with two beds still vacant. One was next to the door where I stood, the other was under the window opposite. 
That one, I guessed, had been left so that Ajanamaru next to it had more space. I said my greetings and set my small day bag down on the bed beside me, then went back to the temple to pay my respects. I sat there leaning against a post, washed in the deep drone of Tibetan chanting. Two monks led the service, chanting and also occasionally banging cymbals and blowing horns, with two young lads trying to follow along. After half an hour they came to an end, slowing down and fading to a halt like an old 78 record when the power had been turned off. The two lads jumped up immediately and rushed to their shoes at the door, one of which was kicked across the floor, followed by laughter. Teenagers. I got up and followed them out as the two monks started on another chant. Back in our room, I had just enough vitality to realise that no, I didn't have to take the bed by the door. After a day like that, I could have the one by the window. It is extremely sacred ground. This is a constant merit of one million times. Because this is, so to say, the amplifier of Kailash power. And you will be there still in the month of Sakadawa. So you have one million times and a hundred thousand times merit. In the period of Sakadawa, they multiply everything by one hundred thousand like this. So it is a very beautiful place to be. And I think you have a rest day at Dirapuk, yes? Yes, I had replied to Roger, exactly. So this is also technically correct, because the first day is easy. The second day will be very much more difficult. So that's why I make a rest day, so you can enjoy the place on one hand, and those who feel like walking, they can walk into the north face. Rory and Chris did that setting off after breakfast to cross another bridge higher up the river and then making their way up the slope on the opposite side of the valley, well above the big guest house the Indian pilgrims were in. This would take them to an opening into a higher valley that led to the black wall of the north face with the last remains of the glacier which had once carved the whole valley. All I could manage that morning was to watch them through my window. I did try sitting on the stone veranda after breakfast, but it was all too much. The bright, pale blue cloudless sky, the sparkling white mountain top. So I retreated back inside. There, looking at the same view through the old window, of small panes, most of them glass but a few replaced with curling plastic, and all streaked with dirt and swirls of red from being crudely repainted, the immensity and brightness became manageable. I could lie and gaze out at the serene mountain, with Ajahn Amro sitting on the bed beside me, stock still in meditation. We spent the morning together like that.
Breakfast had been in the kitchen, prepared by one of the young novices. Just tea, Tibetan style, black and strong, churned with yak butter and salt, and bowls of sampa to pour it on. I realised the other young Tibetan was not a novice, but a young layman wearing parts of a monk's clothes. He sat beside us, chanting to himself, looking about and occasionally laughing. He obviously had learning disabilities, which explained the kicking of the shoe and the laughter the evening before. Dorji told us we were welcome to eat our lunch at the monastery or we could cross the valley to buy a meal in the guest house. The monastery was vegetarian, he warned us, as the young head of the Kagyu lineage, the Kamapa, had recently prohibited meat. As a result, the monks themselves often ate at the guest house. For Ajahn Amro, there was no question. He would stay there for a day of practice. Damarako did explore the possibility of eating at the guest house for the meat, but I wasn't interested. Later, the disabled young man came into our room to check us out, laughing and poking at some of our things. He seemed harmless. I smiled. Ajahn sat, eyes closed. Once the young man had gone, I returned to the view from the window. My mind was at peace. The silence was so strong, it sang, and the mountain opposite was wonderful. Beneath it, the Indian pilgrims had set off early from the guesthouse over the river, far more streaming back down the valley than those going up the track leading to Dolmala. Then I spotted Rory ambling along with his distinctive rolling gait, and then Chris doing his steady, mindful walk. Late morning, Tibetan pilgrims started to appear, coming up the valley, passing the guesthouse and climbing to the pass. The first, a group of teenagers, shouting and mucking about as they went along. Having set off from Darshan before dawn, they would do the whole circuit in a day. But this coming and going of people down below was nothing compared to the power of the mountain above and behind them. Most of the time, I simply gazed at it with a sense of awe. Roger had told us, of course, what we should do with this view. The mountain is Chenrezat, with Vajrapani to the right and Manjushri to the left. The two spurs either side of the valley Rory and Chris had entered seemed nearly as high from this perspective at the monastery creating the sense of three peaks. In Mahayana Buddhism, the principal attributes of the Buddha are represented as three bodhisattvas. Chenreze represents compassion, Vajrapani, power, and Manjushri, wisdom. Here you must contemplate the need to balance these forces. If you develop just power in your life, you will get envy. Or if you just have intelligence, you are not connected to life. So with both, you must also develop compassion. But if you are just having compassion, it does no good. I did try, but my mind wasn't capable of concepts, even lofty ones. Just serenity. That afternoon I managed to leave my room and even discovered the cave Roger had told us we must see. 
It was right behind the monastery shrine, with a few stone steps leading to a simple rock overhang, creating a low shelter. The monastery had been built against the cave. There was even an image of the Buddhist sage he told us about, lit by butter lamps. Eight hundred years ago, when Padmasambhava, who the Kagyu sect looks to as the founder of their tradition, was undertaking the Kora, a great saint, God Sampo, appeared as a female white yak, went into this cave, left an imprint, and then he stayed there three years. You can sleep in this cave. I slept there, which is very interesting for the dreams. Extremely powerful. You try that. Beside the monastery are also 1,000 Buddhas. You must pay homage here too. I think they must be the lines of white stupas I'd passed. And many other important caves. The monks they will show you. It is extremely sacred. And so on. Including all that merit. One million times. And one hundred thousand times. To be a crude. But do you multiply those two? Or just add them? It would make an extremely large difference. Much of the religious practice in Tibet reminded me of the west of Ireland. Here too there are indentations in bedrock which resemble animal footprints that are given great significance. There is also the belief in powerful places where St Patrick or other saints are said to have been and in spiritual merit to be gained by difficult religious observances. Twenty years ago, a friend was contracted by Galway County Council to undertake a survey of such local features and their associated law in Connemara. When the council sought approval for her first draft, the locals insisted it had to be rewritten. She had to remove all the, it is believed that, these things were not believed, they were facts. But that is changing now, as people become more sophisticated. The younger generation view these stories as superstition now, as they do in most of Europe. They are also rejecting the authority of the Catholic Church, until recently as powerful in Ireland as the Buddhist hierarchy was in Tibet. But that little cave did feel very powerful as I sat there with the silence resonating. It was once the simple shelter of a respected hermit at the beginning of the second phase of Buddhism where he had practiced for years facing Kailash. It was the equivalent of the monastic islands off Ireland's west coast which had the same effect on me. Later, I tried to take a walk Maybe I wasn't up to climbing to the north face of the mountain like Rory and Chris, but surely I could wander further up the main valley if I kept on the flat. I managed only 50 paces before I needed my first rest, and I got little further than the two poles with their fluttering prayer flags before I had to give up entirely. There I found a boulder to sit against in the sun. I could manage that and from there enjoy the valley around me. 
With the pilgrims gone, all was at peace. A few clouds were starting to build again, obscuring parts of the mountain. Rory had reckoned this a regular daily cycle. The extra height of Kailash brought the clouds and showers of rain at the day's end as the air warmed. Further north, the mountains were lower and more rounded, like the rest of the Tibetan plateau. There, the sky was still blue and the land appeared drier, grey-brown, as opposed to the greenish-grey where I sat. Being much more ancient than the youthful Himalayas, those mountains had been worn away. Only Kailash, with its igneous core, was still mighty enough to create cloud. A sharp cry and I spotted a marmot standing upright on a slight rise scanning the vicinity before dropping down to graze again. There were others further off once I looked for them. The lama guy came by again, intently staring at the ground beneath for carrion. Or was it bits of food left by the pilgrims? I also enjoyed the large patches of lichen on the rocks. Dark orange, greys, greens and blacks. All were so striking, while the rock itself was full of shiny dots of mica. I found a sweet mat-forming plant reminding me of the living stones of African deserts and how they blend in with their desert environment. Without flowers, it was the same grey as many of the boulders and looked just like one. Then those covered with its tiny white flowers simply looked like a white boulder instead. Rory later told me when I asked, I think it's an androsse, possibly androsse tampeti, but I'm not a hundred percent certain. Alpine gardeners call them rock jasmines. Damarako passed by, returning from his walk like a figure from a Lowry painting of a northern industrial scene come to life, stick-like, leaning forward as he walked. He also has a northern accent, calls a spade a spade, and holds things for later use, which also fits with that poor working man image. He'd given me a short length of old string that morning to repair my water bottle strap. Earlier, he'd spotted a problem with my pack and produced a bit of twisted wire to fix it. I sat there enjoying the empty valley until the first of the next batch of Indian pilgrims appeared. Then I made my way back to the Gompa, followed soon after by Rory and Chris. Over tea, Chris told us, in inspired detail, how he'd climbed up onto the glacier at the base of the north wall to touch the wall itself, and how powerful that experience had been. Rory only managed to comment quietly, I was transfixed. But later Rory told me that he'd sat there for hours gazing up at the vast wall of the black rock above. Rory's not one for hyperbole, but I could see he'd also been deeply affected. He was happy also that he'd found his first mosses in Tibet. He's very fond of mosses. Everyone enjoyed our day of rest, except perhaps poor Apamado, who still had a severe migraine. 
He took it easy that day in the hope it might pass, but it was still just as bad by the evening. I summoned all my remaining vitality to give his shoulders and neck a massage, knowing that this helps Mish with her migraines. He said it helped, but then he would. He's that kind of chap. It must have been that evening that we took the group photo, standing together on the veranda with Mount Kailash behind us. It was taken by Dorje. Then Rory took one with Dorje standing beside the three monks. The same backdrop is in the American slideshow, with Iwana and Laurie, along with Marlene, wearing white silk carters again and standing either side of an impressive-looking Tibetan monk. Presumably, that's the abbot, who was away in Lhasa for our visit. There's no picture of Ajahn Sumedho, though. The monks didn't cross the valley to visit the monastery from their second campsite. John Levy told me they'd found the first two days really difficult. At lunchtime, we asked Dorje to arrange a meeting with the two Tibetan monks so we could thank them for their generosity. We ate earlier than them because of the Theravadan rules. Small lumps of pasta looking like gnocchi covered in dried cheese and rancid butter with the option of salt or sugar. The rest of us struggled to eat it, but Damaraka wolfed down two platefuls, commenting, Full of protein! Dorji arranged the meeting for that evening in the shrine room, but only one of the Tibetan monks came, and after Ajanamara had made a little speech about how thankful we all were for their hospitality, and just as Dorji was starting to translate, the monks started a tape of the evening chanting and joined in. We sat there politely for 15 minutes and then left. Maybe it was simply a misunderstanding, or his shyness, or maybe they just got to meet too many pilgrims. Later, they broke off from their devotions to rush outside to watch a helicopter arriving to deliver a Chinese film crew to the guest house opposite. At least we all did that together. They might have been shy, but as Roger said, this is a kind monastery. The monks will look after you. If you want to sleep in a cave, they will come to find you and bring blankets. They certainly took care of us, giving us the best room, one of them bringing my binoculars, which I'd left outside, I think also of the disabled teenager they'd taken in, and how they found me in the night, as Roger predicted, when I moved to the shrine room in front of the cave. I was there because I still couldn't sleep. If anything, at the higher altitude, my nights were more wakeful, with intense waves of energy and restlessness so that I felt even more trapped, unable to move too much for fear of disturbing the others. I took myself outside, sat for a while in meditation in the shrine room, then lay down. There, one of the monks found me and took me to another bedroom. At first, I thought I had it to myself, but then he joined me at the other end of the room to receive a lengthy phone call from, I suspect, a female friend. The next night I resolved to put up with my original room. I lay there trying to hold my mind in a non-reactive space while listening to the snoring and heavy breathing of my companions 
holding the need to move yet again, not wanting to disturb, yet restless. I managed it this time by taking breaks to play a game on my mobile phone, under the covers so the light wasn't obvious. I brought this phone especially for the trip as it had a seven-day battery to use it as a voice recorder. There were two games on it I hadn't been able to remove. Now I was pleased they were still there. From then on, I spent part of every night shooting down little coloured balls. It became my nighttime solace for the rest of the trip. Not very spiritual. But I'd long given that notion up. It was now just about survival. I knew that the next day would be the hardest, with the climb over Dolmala Pass. Dorji had been concerned about me at breakfast, suggesting I should go back down the valley instead, along with the defeated Indians. I'd assured him I could manage. I'd been taking the previous day easily, so I could enjoy it. Forever the optimist, I really thought with a day of rest I'd managed the pass. So we'd made a deal. I'd start an hour earlier than the others, before first light. Dorje felt much happier with that. And we also agreed that the rest of the group wouldn't wait for me at the top. The only place for the monks to eat, which they had to do before midday, was on the other side. I didn't want them missing their food through waiting for me. But now I knew I could hardly walk on the flat, so how was I going to get up to the pass in the morning? At least I wouldn't have the extra pressure of my companions all waiting at the top. I'd repeated that several times, assuring everyone that I'd manage. I just didn't want to have to hurry. That proved very wise. If I'd thought they were waiting at the top, I'm certain I would have died. <laughs>